Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast brought to you by Raptor Aid and hosted by me, Jimmy Hill. During the coronavirus lockdown, we decided to host some live interviews with raptor conservationists and experts from all over the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded during the lockdown period live on Facebook. Apologies if some of it sounds a little bit disjointed and we go a little bit off track with questions from the audience, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to your favourite expert right here on Raptor Rambles. In this interview, I am really pleased to be joined by Dr. Ruth Tingey. Ruth's a raptor biologist by training, having completed her PhD studying the Madagascan fish eagle. She's also former president of the Raptor Research Foundation. Nowadays, she is the brains behind the fantastically important blog, Raptor Persecution UK, as well as one of the directors for Wild Justice. Ruth doesn't give many interviews, so this is definitely worth a listen. Right. Okay. As far as I'm aware, the Facebook powers that be, we should be live on Facebook now. And so tonight's q and I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Ruth Tingey onto the live Q&A session. So welcome, Ruth. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for inviting me. No, it's all, it's all right. So I, I just said to you off, off air, um, I always start with the same thing, really, because I like to find out and a bit about where people are coming from when it comes to, to their love of raptors and their involvement with raptors. I know a little bit from following various things. Um, so, yeah, Madagascan, Fish Eagle and so on. So st- start from the beginning, if you will, or not necessarily the very beginning. But where well, did it all start, raptors? Um it's a bit of a long story actually i could give you the short version or the long version um i I didn't come into this via the traditional route like uh like most people do um i left school at 16 uh not interested in anything at all apart from dogs and led zeppelin um had no interest in birds or natural history or anything at all I, i liked being outside but that was about it um, so I left and went to work at Battersea Dogs Home for a while, which I loved. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I loved it for, for about two years and then started looking around thinking mm, there's probably more to life than, than this, as good as it was. Um, then I managed to get a job. A friend of mine was working at Heathrow Airport um, at a place called the Animal Reception Centre. Mm-hmm. Um as uh, animal uh, animal health officer, so uh, I went for a job there and got it, which was quite surprising, really, because I had virtually no qualifications or experience or anything. I was quite lucky to get into there, um, and I worked there for seven years. Uh, oh, wow. I just just loved it. So part part of the job was um, looking after people's pets that were transiting through Heathrow or, or uh, they're they're being imported and coming into quarantine. That was part of the job. Um, and the other part was looking at wildlife that was coming through, either uh, being imported into the UK or again transiting through. Um, that kind of opened my eyes a lot to what was going on in the world. And for the first few years, I really enjoyed it because you never knew what consignment was coming in, what species was coming in, what you were going to have to handle. Um, but, you know, as you get a bit older and you start thinking about things, you start 
realizing that these these things have been caught in the wild and they're destined for the pet trade uh, some of them coming in in pretty grim conditions um, yeah. and it became more difficult for me to uh, to be there and do that job uh, but what I really liked about the job more than anything was it was shift work so that that center uh, was open 24 hours a day um, so it meant that we we worked a 24-hour shift rotor and it meant I had a lot of free time um, during the day and I'd started getting interested in conservation uh, just uh, mainly with a group called uh, BTCV British Trust for Conservation Volunteers yeah. um, so I've been doing quite a bit of, you know, just practical conservation work with them and, and learning a bit more and just having, having a bit of a good time, really. Um, so uh, that's where the raptor thing started. We, we were out in Windsor Great Park one day doing a bit of rhododendron bashing. And yeah. the person who'd organised that day had organised for this guy to come and talk to us at, at lunchtime. So um, this old bloke shuffled up um, almost in a dirty Mac. Um, his name's Ted Green. I don't know if you've if you've heard of him. He's a, he's a bit of a legend. I don't know, um, but I like the sound of him already. <laughs> so um, he'd worked at Windsor Great Park for for decades. He's a, uh, a veteran tree expert. That's his real thing. But uh, but he's also into birds. Um, and he shuffled over to this clearing where we were all having sat having lunch and put his hand in this in the pocket of this mac uh, and pulled out a fistful of feathers. Uh, a bit of like a bit of a magician really and he started talking about these feathers he'd, he'd put, pick one up and he'd say uh this is uh, this is a barn owl yeah. feather uh this is a, a a buzzard's tail feather uh this is a sparrowhawk's primary and he said i've picked up all these all these feathers from the car park from my way from the car park to here wow and cool. uh, well, I believed him because I was gullible in those yeah. days. Um, and I'd never even heard of a sparrowhawk. I'm like, who is this guy? Uh, and what's he been seeing? How, how can he know about all these things that I've never even heard of? So um, he was uh, really engaging, um, quite charismatic, as you can imagine. Um, and I got talking to him afterwards. And he was talking about the sparrowhawk study that he'd been doing in Windsor Great Park for a couple of decades, really. Um, and I said that I'd never seen one. Um, and he said, well, you should come out with us, uh, come out one weekend when, when we're off out. So um, I did that. Uh, I went out a few times with him and a couple of other guys that he was working with. Um, spent the day trudging through um, coniferous forest, uh, seeing absolutely nothing apart yeah. from um, uh, plucking posts and uh, all the white spray that you get and of course they were explaining all these signs to me and I was just amazed that you could tell all this stuff uh, yeah. just just by looking at, at the ground um, and then one of those days uh, we were out and um, I had my dog with me and uh, Ted's just just suddenly grabbed hold of my arm we were just walking through he grabbed hold of my arm and said hey stand still stand still uh, and above our heads on this uh, branch, an oak, an oak branch, um, this female sparrowhawk had landed and was calling and the male came in and did this prey delivery to her. And it was right there, it was right over our heads. And that was it for me. That was the first sighting of a sparrowhawk. And to see that behavior and yeah. have someone there who knew what was going on and could could explain it to me, uh, I was that was it, I was hooked. So, um, 
I probably spent the next year, every, every day off that I had, I was out sparrow walking in, in Windsor Great Park, looking for these things. Um, and then it got to the stage with work at Heathrow where uh, I thought, yeah, I don't really want to do this anymore. Uh, and an opportunity came up to take a sabbatical for, um, for a few months. So I went to Mauritius on a project with um, Rally International. Uh, yeah. You know about yeah. them. Uh, it's, it's, it's the first time that they were going to Mauritius and um, I didn't know very much about Mauritius or, or Rally actually. I just saw it as, as an opportunity to go and do something else for a little bit and have a change of scene. Um, went to Mauritius, met Carl Jones, um, your new mate Carl. Yeah, my new <laughs> um, best mate. <laughs> who um, was just such an inspiring guy as you can imagine for you know yeah. for, for all sorts of reasons but for me again just at that stage in my life I, I was just fascinated by what he'd been able to do there in terms of conservation of the Mauritius kestrel and some other species he was working on at the same time so pink pigeons yeah. and echo parakeets were the big deal at the time um I was fascinated with what he'd done um but also that that you could actually have a career working it with that sort of thing. I had no idea that you could do that at all. So um, I spent three months there with Rally, just had a ball, absolute ball, um, came back to Heathrow, uh, quit my job because I knew that was it then. I couldn't, I couldn't be there anymore, couldn't do that. Um, and Carl had offered me a placement back in Mauritius. Um, so every year he would take in a, a group of uh, mostly young, mm -hmm. young people some students, some just volunteers like I was, um, and he'd allow us to, to work with him for a season, um, which I, I don't think that, that Carl gets enough credit for that, actually. You know, he, he gets credit for, for all the brilliant conservation work that he's done, but, uh, but actually there's another side of it. Um, I was thinking this morning, um, pretty much everybody who who I was in Mauritius with at that time on that year's intake um, have all stayed in conservation you know that's that's quite a feat and he's been doing that for years he must have a whole load a whole army of people who he's inspired to to get involved um, yeah well just to interrupt yeah he said to me the other day just to interrupt he's been involved in over 40 people getting PhDs right which is quite something yeah that doesn't yeah. surprise me yeah. yeah yeah it's yeah it's, it's pretty it's a pretty special place for for a number of reasons i can tell you a, a funny story about carl but we'll come come back to that later maybe okay <laughs> he, he might not like me telling it <laughs> <laughs> um so uh yeah i was there uh there for six months um just had a blast uh just learning about you know practical conservation hands-on conservation learning from him uh, got to work with the Mauritius Kestrel, which just blew my mind, really. Um, and while I was there, one of my jobs while I was there was uh, to go up to the Black River Gorges every night and feed uh, six pairs of kestrels that he'd trained to come down to a whistle and, and take a, a mouse or a Dale chick or something. Um, yeah. So that was my job. So when we had uh, tourists coming through or important people who Carl needed to impress, he'd send them up the Black River Gorges to, to get them to hold the mouse out so that the kestrel could come down 
and take it. It's amazing. So you can imagine the impact on somebody. Um, so uh, one of these groups that I took up uh, was a tour guide, an American tour guide called uh, John Rowlett, um, who just happened to be on also on the board of a place called Hawk Mountain Sanctuary in the state. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we went up to the gorges, had a great time. All, all his uh, clients were happy with what was going on. And we were just chatting, we just got on really. And he said, what are you going to do after this when you finished here? And I said, I, I don't know, I haven't really thought about it. And he said, um, you should think about applying to Hawk Mountain because they have, um, they have these internships that they offer every year. Uh, and people who are interested in raptor, raptor conservation can go there they get all you get all your accommodation, all your food. You get a stipend. They pay they pay your airfare over there. It's just a brilliant experience. Um, so I kind of said, yeah, yeah, whatever. Thinking, you know, you'd have to have some kind of degree at least to to go there. I kind of put it out of my mind. Um, but when he left um, a couple of weeks later, he sent a fax through to Carl um, for the attention of of me and said, um, I. I've been in touch with the guys at Hawk Mountain. I see you haven't applied yet. You need to apply now. <laughs> so I'm Brilliant. thinking, well, okay, there must be something in it if he's bothered to, to do that. Yeah. So um, I did apply and uh, got accepted. I think probably because because I'd come through Mauritius. Um, uh, so I went over to Hawk Mountain uh, after Mauritius, did a, an internship there, which again was just... Um, just mind-blowing for me um i got to work with a guy called keith bilstein who was uh yeah, yeah. you know keith i don't um, know him but i definitely know the name and, and yeah. books and papers and stuff yeah yeah, yeah really really, really productive guy but um really good at uh at personal development for for people he's really he's really into that so he had me yeah. doing some research on american kestrels um which was good fun and just the whole ethos of, of Hawk Mountain Sanctuary, um, it used to be a place where, so it's up, it sits up on the mountain in the Appalachians, uh, mm -hmm. and it's part of um, the migration flyway for birds of prey. So back in, uh, I think, 1920s, 1930s, um, people would go up onto the hillside and shoot the raptors that were coming through on migration. Um, and there were some very famous photographs of, of a whole load of raptors that had been shot there that were laid out on the side of the mountain um, that made it into the New York Times and it caused a bit of a stir um, and somebody came along and bought the mountain and turned it into this sanctuary um, and also turned it into this, like, I think they call it uh, the school in the clouds. So it's the land is, is protected, but they've also got this really cool uh, education department not just for international interns, but, but also for, for local people as well. So it's a big attraction. Um, so being there is uh, just being immersed in, in the world of raptor conservation was, uh, was a real eye-opener. Um, and then Keith, uh, Keith decided that the research that I'd done on, on the American Kestrel, he decided it would be good for me to go to uh, Raptor Research Foundation conference and present these findings. Um, which just terrified me completely because I had no uh, no experience of that, um, no real interest in it, to be honest. But um, he said, no, you, you should do it. It'd be good for you. So uh, I did do it. Um, 
and that was uh, that was another it was another door opening, another opportunity. Um, met some really really important people who became very important uh, to me later on. Um, I just really enjoyed the whole raptor research community. You know, it's it's a really small field, which I'm sure you're you're aware of. Yeah. Um, but it was re really interesting to meet these people. So, you know, some some names, uh, some some really big names. You know, people like Ian Newton were going there and presenting their work, uh, right down to little idiots like me who didn't have a clue who were just you know talking about some American kestrels that they've been looking at for a few months. So uh, it's real diversity. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Um, after that, uh, I got the opportunity to go down to Mexico to a place called Veracruz. Okay, yeah, I've um, heard of that. Yeah. Which was, uh, there's someone else at Hawk Mountain, someone called Laurie Goodrich, who's now just taken Keith's job, actually. So she's head of uh, conservation science there. Um, at the time, she was head of monitoring. And she'd established this new project down in Veracruz in, in, in Mexico, looking at raptor migration. Um, there were some Mexican guys, Mexican lads, basically, who had been watching um, migrating raptors come through and had counted extraordinary numbers of birds coming through. And nobody in the States believed them. You know, they were talking about a couple of million birds coming through. Wow. So um, they got in touch. I think one of them actually had been an intern at Hawk Mountain Sanctuary. So they linked up with Laurie. Laurie believed them. Um, but said, okay, if, if we want the rest of the community to to uh, to believe you, we're going to have to send some some seasoned hawk watchers down from America um, to to see what you what you're looking at. So I was really lucky to get onto that team because I wasn't a seasoned hawk watcher at all, but um, I was interested in, in what they were doing. Um, so I went down to Veracruz. Uh, oh my god, <laughs> I ended up doing uh, three years there. Um, okay. It is just phenomenal. Uh, I mean, Veracruz itself, uh, the watch site was a bit of a dump. It's in this, uh, there are two watch sites. One of them was in this crap little town uh, and you'd stand up on the hotel roof. It's the tallest, uh, tallest part okay, in the yeah. town um, and just count raptors. They call it the river of raptors. Um, yeah. And what happens is the birds are coming down. Uh, they're using the mountains uh, to, to funnel through and then they get out onto the plain, which is where our um, our watch site was. Uh, and they're just coming out. The sky is full of raptors everywhere you look. So we'd, we'd be standing on this hotel roof. We'd have two teams of counters looking, uh, you'd kind of split the sky uh, and we would scan. We'd start at like six in the morning um, and we'd go through till six mm -hmm. at night and you're constantly scanning. And we had these, um, clickers to to try and keep count because you, you've got your main species coming through which are coming through in massive flocks so uh, Swainson's hawks and broadwing hawks and turkey vultures and then you've got the individual migrants zipping through the middle so you've got peregrines and merlins and osprey darting yeah. around so you've got to try and keep track and you're calling out you've got a, um, a counter sitting at a table with a pen trying to keep track of what you're doing and you start, uh, you start counting off in, in multiples of one when, when the birds are just starting to come through. And then as the day progresses and, and the, uh, the land heats up, this mass comes towards you. And you're just trying to estimate the, the number. You, you're using your clicker and you're, you're looking at the sky, looking at this flock and thinking, okay, that's a thousand birds, one, thousand birds, two. So it's a real 
guesstimate wow. of what's going on. Um, but that season, uh, the first season I was there, I think we had something like 4.6 million raptors come through. Uh, and the majority of those were over a period of one week. Um, you know, the, 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 the migration. It's just, uh, it's, yeah, it is amazing. Um, so I did that for, for three years. Um, but again, it was seasonal. So that was, uh, you know, from August uh, through to uh, November, I think we did. And then I'd go back up to Hawk Mountain and mess around there for a bit. Um, yeah. But then um, I was having a good time and I thought, well, you know, kind of need to be thinking a bit a bit more seriously, perhaps about what I want to do. Um, then I went to Israel and did uh, did the migration in Ilat, um, which again, it was awesome, but in a different ways. It doesn't compare with Veracruz in terms of the numbers, but um, it does, it beats Veracruz in terms of the sights that you get. You know, you're standing on the mountains and these birds are, are thermaling up in front of you. You've got an eye to eye vision and, oh, yeah. and then they're off. So that was pretty good. Um, although I didn't enjoy Israel particularly, it was quite a difficult country to work in. Okay. Um, so uh, by that point, um, I'd been going back to Raptor Research Foundation conferences, uh, mainly to present on, on our work in Veracruz and try and get people to believe these, these numbers. Um, and I'd met up with uh, some people at the Peregrine Fund because while I've been at Hawk Mountain, they've got this brilliant library at Hawk Mountain um, with every newsletter you can think of, every journal, every newsletter. And I was like, it's just in my element there. Yeah. Uh, and I'd become fascinated with what, what the Peregrine Fund were doing in Madagascar. Uh, they're working on a couple of, uh, couple of eagle species there. Um, so to get the chance to meet the Peregrine Fund guys who, who were the big deal um, was, was incredible. And I'd got, uh, I'd got an interest in a kestrel species there. I had no interest in, in eagles as such at that point. I was interested in a kestrel called the banded kestrel, um, which doesn't look like a kestrel at all. Um, very little known about it. And I just thought it'd be really, really cool to go and, uh, and look at it. Uh, and I'd read about Madagascar. Jerry Dorrell's books particularly um, had really got me, got me thinking about it and Carl as, uh, as well, I guess. Um, so I started pestering uh, this guy called Rick Watson, who was uh, director of uh, African programs. I started pestering him at, at conferences, asking if I could go to Madagascar on the Peregrine Fund's money uh, and look at the banded kestrel. And of course, he told me where to get off every, every time. Um, but I kept seeing him. So this went on for about three or four years. Uh, and I asked him every time and he, he just like, no, we're not doing anything on banded kestrel. So, okay. Um, and then one one year, I think it was a conference, uh, I think it was a World Working Group conference, I don't think it was Raptor Research actually, in South Africa, 98 this would have been. Um, I turned up there, again I was talking about the stuff we've been doing in Veracruz and uh, giving these numbers, uh, and I was walking along the concourse uh, and I could see Rick Watson coming towards me and uh, I thought, oh, shall I ask him again? And I thought, hey, he probably won't even remember who I am, I'm just going to make, make myself look complete dick here. And uh, he kind of caught my eye and he went, wow, Ruth, how are you? And I thought, oh, oh yeah. Uh, I said, yeah, good. Uh, he said, what are you up to? And I said, well, uh, just finishing off in, in Veracruz. He said, oh, I'm so glad I've seen you. Um, we've, got, we've got this project in, in Madagascar on the Madagascar fish eagle. 
uh, and we're looking for someone to come out and, and do some stuff, will you be interested? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, but I said my, my immediate reaction was, well, I don't know anything about Madagascar fish eagle. I don't know anything about eagles at all. You're, you're probably asking the wrong person. Uh, and he said, no, no. Uh, he said, I'm asking the right person. He said, I know that you've been uh, you've been persistent in, in asking to go to Madagascar. And he said, uh, he said what, what you don't know is that's how I filter people out. Um, you know, you might, get, you might get somebody asking once and then they'll clear off and you never hear, hear from them again. But if you've got someone who's continually asking you, then there's a pretty good chance that they really want to do it and they'll do a reasonable job. So uh, I said, well, yeah, if, you know, if you're willing to take a chance on me, then of course I'd, I'd bloody love to go to Madagascar. Uh, he said, there's one condition. Well, okay, here we go. Uh, he said, um, you have to be enrolled in a degree program. And uh, I said, well, that might be difficult because uh, I think it, I think he, he said a postgraduate degree. Okay. Uh, I said, I don't have a degree. Um, so yeah, that might be problematic. And he said, well, uh, you know, how badly do you want to go to Madagascar? He said, if, if you want to go there, you'll work something out. He said, just, just get in touch with me when you've worked it out. So um, I did. I came back to the UK, um, thought, thought about how I could do it, knew that I didn't want to do a degree, an undergrad degree, and I just thought I'd be bored, stupid doing it. Um, and managed to talk my way onto uh, a master's degree at Nottingham. Uh, and again, you know, it, it comes down to somebody being there uh, prepared to give me uh, a chance. Uh, there's a guy called Roy Haynes-Young who was running this uh, this master's mm. program. Um, and he said, look, you, you know, you don't have you don't have the academic credentials that we normally ask for, but uh, you've got a hell of a lot of field experience. Um, we'll let you on. Uh, all you've got to do is um, get a minimum of 50% in every single exam and, and you'll be fine. You know, you, you'll do it. So, um, so I did, I went, I went there, I went to Nottingham, um, did a master's degree, which, uh, which I really enjoyed actually. That's, that surprised the hell out of me um, because previously yeah, academia had, had held no interest to me at all. Yeah. Um, but that particular year on that particular course, uh, there were a number of uh, mature students who, who were in the same position as I was. Really supportive crowd. Um, and, and to be fair, the, the kids who were on that course as well, who'd, who'd just come through their undergrad degree, were also really supportive. It was a great group. Um, and I worked my arse off to, to try and keep up. You know, I was there every night, 10, 11 at night, every bloody weekend. Uh, there's sad me sitting, sitting in the common room trying to learn how to type and all, and all sorts of stuff. But, um, yeah. but I really enjoyed it. Um, the Nottingham staff were great. Uh, and for my dissertation, I was off to Madagascar to look at these fish eagles. So I was happy. So um, managed to get through the course, went off to Madagascar, uh, was there for five months field work, um, which was everything that I'd expected it to be and, and more. Um, came back to to the UK, came back to Nottingham, and they'd given me um, they'd given me an extension to to finish writing up because my fieldwork season had been so long. Um, 
as I was sitting in there one day, sitting in, in the university writing up this thesis, um, and someone came along, one of the staff members, and said, what are you doing after, after you've finished this? And I said, well, I don't know, I haven't really thought that far. Um, and she said, uh, you should apply for a PhD scholarship. You can do it on whatever subject you like. Uh, I'm like, no, nah, I don't think PhD is for me, really. Uh, uh, but she was insistent again uh, and said, no, seriously, uh, you can do it on whatever you like. So I got back in touch with Rick Watson at the Fund and said, you know, they're offering me this. Um, what do you think? Shall I go back to Madagascar and do some more stuff on the fish eel? Because the stuff that we'd done, that I'd done on the masters was, um, I'd just thrown up more questions, you know, as yeah. research always yeah. does. Uh, so Rick was, was really pleased. He's like, yeah, if they're, if they're going to pay you uh, to go and pay your tuition and everything, uh, we'll host you on our, on our project. So, um, so yeah, I did, I did that. Um, went back to, to Madagascar, for the next three years, um, which is interesting in, <laughs> in lots of different ways. Uh, came back uh, and I was back at Hawk Mountain writing up. I was doing a, another internship. It was like a post-grad internship there. So yeah. they'd allow me the time and space to write up my thesis. And in return, I'd do some training for their latest bunch of uh, interns. Uh, and while I was there, uh, somebody came through who was working with eagles in Scotland and said, what are you doing after this? And I said, well, I don't know, <laughs> just trying to finish my thesis. Uh, yeah. And he said, well, yeah, would you like to come and, uh, and do some work with us um, in Scotland? Uh, and I, ha I had to think about it, really, because um, up until that point, I I'd, I'd deliberately avoided working in the UK because... Okay. Um, I'd assumed that uh, there wasn't much work to do in the UK. And I thought any, anything that was going on would be covered by somebody like the RSPB. Um, so I'd deliberately uh, chosen to, to work overseas um, prior to that. I'd, I'd done some work in, um, I'd started doing some work in Cambodia by, by that stage. Again, um, because I knew it was an area as a country where there's very little research being done and very little known about some of the species there. So um, working in Scotland hadn't appealed at that point, but, but by then I'd worked abroad for so long, uh, I was kind of getting to the stage where I thought, well, actually I'd quite like to um, get a bit more settled in, in a way. Um, so I thought, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll try Scotland. So, um, I went to Scotland, did a couple of years uh, doing wind farm monitoring, um, which just bored me to tears, <laughs> mostly. Uh, there, there's some, some of it was good, but uh, a lot of it was just um, drudgery. Uh, there's no thinking involved, really. It's just, you know, go and sit there for three hours and, and record what, what, you're, what you're seeing. Um, which is all right when you've when you've never been to a place before, but when you're doing that for, you know, five months yeah. straight, uh, you don't know anybody there. Um, yeah, it got a bit a bit boring really. So um, I applied for a job at the RSPB Investigations Unit uh, actually um, while I was working in Scotland, and I had one day off. And I remember I got an interview for this job, uh, and I had to drive from from the Isle of Skye. Uh, overnight 
drove drove down to Newcastle, right, yeah. had a had a day long interview with the investigations team. It was the most grueling interview I've ever had. Not that I've had many interviews. Most things yeah. have just kind of happened, but um, it was a really tough interview. Uh, and then I had to drive all the way back to Sky to go back to work the next day. So I was absolutely knackered, uh, and I didn't get the job either. So. Uh, I was a bit gutted at the time, although now knowing what I know, uh, I'm pretty pleased that that I didn't get it. Because <laughs> yeah. I think I could have worked within the constraints of of the RSPB, RSPB uh, yeah, but I didn't yeah. know that at the time. Um, but then the people I was working for, um, it's a group called Natural Research. Um, they had the commercial arm, which is where I was working, uh, and they kind of knew that I was looking to go. Um, so they said, "Well, okay, um, we've got." The research arm do you want to come and do some stuff in there instead so uh, I did that for, for a few years did some really good stuff um, working with uh, golden eagles uh, we were looking at collecting DNA um, and goshawks and white-tailed eagles as well as a bit of a bit of other stuff uh, so I enjoyed that and it and it that brought me into contact with the Scottish Raptor study group people uh, and I started learning uh, a lot more about persecution and what was going on uh I, I was pretty pretty horrified actually to 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 learn about the extent of it uh, um but more so that i didn't know about it you know here's here's me working in in raptor conservation uh and i was completely unaware of of the state of of things in scotland and also in england of course um so um I left, I left that job in 2010, uh, took off to Mongolia because uh, I had something going on with Palace's fish eagles over there. Okay, yeah. uh, that was brilliant. Um, yeah. Spent uh, five, six months uh, driving across Mongolia with this madman looking for Palace's fish eagles, which is great fun. Um, oh. And then uh, really kind of wanted to to do something about this persecution thing it was in my head uh, and i couldn't i couldn't let it go and that's that's where the blog started brilliant, brilliant. that was the long just, version sorry no it's all right i just if you don't mind um share what sort of just a bit of context what sort of age were you when you sort of went into like the masters for instance the reason I ask is because I get asked Ruth all the time and one of the things why that was absolutely perfect then is I get asked all the time by not just academics people who are like my age and older who, who want a change and they want to they want to completely flip things and, and go into conservation or that sort of thing so what because obviously you didn't do that straight from school what, yep. what sort of ages were you working at? Um, I was probably about 30, 31, maybe when I went to do the master's. So quite old <laughs> then. Um, but as I said, there, there were a number of, of uh, mature students on, on that particular course. Um, and I think a lot of universities encourage mature students because it's more funding for them. Um, yeah. And mature students bring, bring something different to the party. You know, yeah. we, we might not have all, all the, we certainly don't have all the academic skills or understand how to write an essay or, or something like that. But yeah. but we have other skills, just life skills, really, about organisation and perspective and things like that. Um, and if you get the right group together, 
Um, and if you've got a, a good team of, of staff there encouraging you, then I think people can do pretty well, you know. Yeah. But you've, no, you've, got, you've got to be prepared to work hard, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I always, I mean, it's the same with with me is I, I never, I was crap at school. I was terrible at school. I'd rather out of school than in school. Um, and, and yeah, I didn't do, I did a math, I didn't, haven't, haven't done an undergrad and I did a master's two years ago at Exeter. Loved every minute of it. And I, but it's funny you say before about getting into it. Cause I remember my bro, my younger brother is the brainy one of the family went to primary school. He's a doctor, you know, doctor, he's done his PhD, all that stuff. And he's the favorite son, not that bitter, but anyway, <laughs> um, and he, I never forget ringing steel cause he was a massive support to me through my master's through the year and I said Steve I've got onto the masters at Exeter and he went yeah you will do because they'll just take your money and fail you <laughs> I was like okay cheers Steve uh, okay so uh so yeah but I loved it so I was in very it, it sort of rings true with me I didn't hit this until late with in terms of education and I love it and so it's nice to hear your your story for hopefully for people that are later on or thinking of flipping things and you know and, and changing things up so yeah that's uh yeah that's, I, don't, uh, I, I don't think age age should be age shouldn't be a barrier at all a, a lot of people see it as a barrier but yeah, why the hell should it be yeah, if you want to do something you just go and do it cool so before we go so obviously as well i've got a i think it, it's, a, it's a fair achievement as well before we go on to the blog which you've quite nicely got onto um raptor research foundation that that um i can't remember the words you you used when you described compared yourself to ian newton but anyway um <laughs> you became you became the president of, of the raptor research foundation didn't you um that's that's not mr i didn't make that up did i that's you right. didn't make that up but it's it's not it's not really an achievement as such what you find jimmy as you get older is that people are reluctant to do things and they push <laughs> they'll push things your way because they think oh that's there's a doer they'll they'll have a go at it so it wasn't uh, it wasn't a competition as such you had to be elected so the the membership have to um have to think that you're going to do a, a you know fairly decent job but um i knew them uh, i'd been with the rrf um as a member for a number of years and i'd worked as as uh, one of the international directors on the board yeah. for, for a number of years so uh, they knew me pretty well. I knew them. Um, I think it was just uh, it was just time for a change. Um, so when I was elected, I was the first female president that they've ever had, which was a big deal to them. It, it, it shouldn't have been, you know, gender shouldn't be an issue at all, but it was. Um, but more importantly, um, I was the first overseas president that, okay. that they'd had because uh, RF had started in the States um and um it's still still to this day dominated uh by members in the states but gradually uh, one of the things that i was interested in when i became a director was um making it a, a more international making it more representative for international members because the international members were there but uh it was quite difficult for them to get to every conference in the states every year you know yeah. Um, so one of the things I'd worked on as a director was um, was to try and broaden it out. So uh, we had the first our first international uh, annual conference was in Scotland in 2009. Um, 
which I'd organised with a team of guys from, from Scotland. Um, and it was a big deal for the organisation because um, I want my my idea for, for the for the society was to have uh, an international uh, conference quite regularly, not once every twenty years, but you know once every five years or something. So the, the Scotland conference was um, was a bit of a test case, really. Um, yeah. Can people cope with it? Uh, the, the beauty of Scotland was that the language was almost similar to, to the states. Um, customs were almost similar, you know. You know what I mean. People could cope with it; it wasn't too challenging for them. And of yeah. course, the the scenery. People going to Scotland. Uh, we had this conference in what looked like uh, a castle. So for the Americans, they just loved that. Um, yeah. We had a brilliant organising team um, who just made it work. Um, and we had. Uh, in the end, we had 300 delegates coming in from, from about 30 countries around the world. And, and it was just brilliant. Um, so I think from there, the, the society thought, oh, OK, um, maybe we can do this again. Uh, and since then, they've had a, uh, an annual conference in Argentina, uh, which I went to a few years ago. Again, it was brilliantly organised, really, really, really good. Um, and they've just had one last year, I think, in... Kruger National Park, I think, in South Africa. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was that was the idea of uh, of my. That's why I was interested in, in the RF, um, not just because of the the science that they do uh, and the opportunity to to network with all these fantastic raptor biologists from all around the world, and yeah. that's that in itself is is worth the membership. Um, but just to try and um, draw them out of uh, of the states a little bit, and it's it's getting there. It's slow, but it's getting there. Good. No, that's, yeah. Are you a member? Um, I'm. I was. I was actually a member when you were president. That's why I know about it. But I'm, mm -hmm. I'm one of them people. I probably I have let it lapse. So yeah, yeah. I'm a, I used to get the. I used to love getting the glossy journal and, and all that. But uh, yeah, and now now you've shamed me. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I'm a member anymore either. I think my member. I, I definitely was because I, I. Yeah. I, I, yeah. But I. Uh, like you say, it was because yeah. They used to. I always remember. I think they've still got it, haven't they? They've got the. I forget. I know the acronyms ECCR. The early careers. Early career. Development or something. Yeah, that, so that I remember, and I remember thinking that's brilliant. What a great idea that is! Yeah, um, but it was very, like you say, it was a Amer very American centric sort of, yeah, because uh, it was driven. And I thought that would be a wonderful, wonderful thing for something in the UK. And actually, it probably leads me uh, talking about that. Some I can't forget about the questions. Someone's asked, well, Al's asked two questions. One, he's asked about best um, who do I get in touch with if I wanted to get involved in. A migratory count. Well, I know I'll I'll answer one bit. Is that there's the, they go on in Europe like the Batumi raptor count, and a good place is Bird Fair. I know it's not on this year, but if you go to Bird Fair, there's normally a couple of raptor migration count watch points there. What about America? How easy is it for someone from the UK routing now? Is it? Oh, it's very um, easy. Um, I would I would go on to the Hawk Watch website. Uh, Hawk Watch is an American charity uh, that that specializes in, in uh, raptor migration watch sites throughout, throughout uh, the US. Um, so they're, they're interested in the data for, for generating scientific reports and stuff. But um, 
they uh, they host volunteers. Uh, their watch sites are all pretty um, pretty well run and, and, and established. You know, they've been running for, for years. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's very easy. And he's also asked. Um, uh, it sounds like you have been been in the you have to be in the industry to get the next step. Certainly seems to fit with my experience. But having now been out of the circles for nearly a decade, what suggestions would you have to maybe have a chance to get involved again? Go on, I'll let you. Um, well, I don't think you should see it as a as a closed door at all. My experience has been, I think I, I mentioned earlier, um, I've been really, really lucky to have been given opportunities by, by a number of people. Uh, and I think the key thing is to take those opportunities when you see them. So yeah, most of the things that I've done have come about because I've known somebody, or I've been working with them on something um, and they know someone else who's looking for some, somebody to come and join that project. Um, so it's just a question of getting yourself back in there, um, doing some voluntary work if, if that's what you want to do or yeah. you know, whatever. I don't think um, I'd be surprised if, if, if you were turned away, especially if you've got prior experience. I'd be really surprised if, if you were turned away. And if you are turned away, it's probably not someone you want to work with anyway. Yeah. So just tr go and try somewhere else. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, one of the things I found, well, it's been reinforced, I already knew it, but from doing these interviews, it's emailing some of them that I've never spoke to before. So we had Dr. Darcy Agarda on from, you know, the Peregrine oh. Fund, and she's wonderful. I'd never spoke to her before, and she's just sent me another email today, just, oh, Jimmy, I thought you might be interested to read this. And, you know, lo so many people, Carl Jones, you know, I spoke to him for two hours, as I said to you on the phone, about owls and you know, signaling and all sorts of crazy stuff that cars into. And it is, I think people need to realize that a lot of these people you might hold in high esteem, some people, um, they're just happy to share stuff. I, I, I'm i a bit of a weirdo and I like chucking the odd email out because I've read someone's book and I think it's wonderful. So I, I tell them and ask them a question and I find most raptor biologists, whatever you want to title them, are more than happy to share it, share their passion with people. So... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd agree. Uh, uh, Mike Price, you know, Mike, you said hi. Um, hi, Mike. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I'll get, get back out there. Get back out there. Right, blog time. Let's talk, because I followed the blog for a long, long time. It's wonderful. Um, it started off as Raptor Persecution Scotland. Is that correct? Yep. And now it's Raptor Persecution UK. Yep. Correct. So the blog, uh, you know, it's, 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 for me, it's wonderful. It's I can't. I, one of the things I struggle with, Ruth, is getting my head around the the information and the effort that goes into running it. So you, I don't. Yeah, you can touch on that if you want. Um, but yeah, ha, ha, don't you don't necessarily have to start from the beginning. But because you've mentioned how the blog came about in terms of you know you, people didn't know you weren't aware of raptor persecution and sadly the the fact that it is, is a big problem. Um, Logan says hi too, as well, Logan Steele. <laughs> um, but, uh, so that's obviously where the blog came about, but it has turned into one hell of a beast. And I mean that in the nicest way, in a, a positive way, hasn't it? So did you ever expect it to 
become what it has? <laughs> um, I don't. I don't think I had any uh, real ambition for it uh, in in that sense. I mean, I, it's ten years old yeah. this year, um, and when when it started, I didn't envision still doing it ten years on. Um, I was probably probably very naive uh, about how things work and how things are. And well, I was naive to, to the extent of what goes on anyway. So um, over the years, I've become more and more cynical <laughs> by it. Um, I think that's understandable. Um, but no, I, did, I didn't expect it to, to be where it's at. Uh, and I'm pretty pleased with, with where it's at. I thought it would have been closed down a long time ago um, by people who really don't like it at all. Yeah. Um, uh, but so far, touch wood, uh, it hasn't. It hasn't been closed down. Um, I'm pretty careful about what I write. I, I have to be because I yeah. think I, I know that there are some people who monitor what's written on the blog, and they're just looking for an opportunity to um, to sue me or you know have have the blog taken off. Um, so that's one reason to be careful but also you know i don't want to be libelous i don't want to accuse somebody of, of something yeah. they haven't done so um that really more than anything that takes the time that's what takes the time you, you know you know what you want to write you know you know what the story is or what the subject is or what the hook is but it's just getting the words right so so that uh you know some clever defense lawyer can't pick it up and say well you've just defamed x y and z we're going to sue sue your ass off um, yeah so and well and well and, and it also another added and, and correct me if i'm wrong and i suppose another added workload for it is the comments because i followed the blog and obviously people are allowed to comment on the bottom and they can people can write whatever they want and that is part of the blog in many ways so you've got that headache as well to deal with so, yeah, it's not it's not really a headache. It's brilliant that, that people want to engage with it. Um, and I get a lot from from those comments. You know, a lot of the time people people will say things that I've never even considered or they'll have different knowledge to me, different expertise. So it's really good in, in that sense. Um, sometimes it can be difficult when when people just don't think about the libel issues. Um, and at one stage, I went, I went through, uh, through the process of trying to rewrite the comment for them so that the, the main bulk was still there. The point that they were trying to make was there, uh, but I just take out a few key words that the, the, the potentially defamatory stuff, but yeah. uh, that got too onerous. Uh, and uh, now I just delete and just put crosses in because yeah. I don't have the time to, to yeah. sit and, you yeah. know, um, but I think most most people get that now, um, and I try to be. Uh, I mean, there are some some comments that get through. I don't think that they're libelous as such, in as much as they're libeling a, a named individual. Some people will write disparagingly about a group or a particular community, yeah. um, but I think that's fair comment to in response to what they're seeing on the blog. So I'm, I'm not going to um, I'm not going to delete that unless it's offensive. Yeah. So the blog's gone, obviously, 
you're in, you're heavily involved. Am I allowed to say that in in the world of conflict and and raptor persecution and yeah, sharing it with people and understanding it and trying to not just doing that now. It's not just sharing it with people and understanding it. Is is now making change and and changing things. I I mean I don't even maybe I should have thought about this before we we started this, but I don't even know where to start with with raptor persecution in in the UK uh, because it's going on in, in increasing well yeah increasingly it's it's I a great example of this is the other day that there was a press release wasn't there about a peregrine a buzzard and another peregrine uh, potentially as far as I, I was told and that came directly to me from the police officer because through, through and, and I forwarded it on to our told them who to speak to, and but that's a that's a regular that's a weekly thing, isn't it? It's not a it's not a yearly thing. It's not a quarterly. You know, raptor persecution is taking place, and I think for me, what a lot of people don't understand, and they you wouldn't expect them to, but when you speak to people like yourself or you know, raptor monarch people who work in the field. It's a, it is an ongoing thing. It's not. This isn't just a once in a blue moon issue that we're facing in this country. Um, and and that's the hard. That's the hard thing I can't understand is is getting people to understand it and having to wade through all the crap that that um, is put in the way. Um, so how do you? How, What's how I don't, yeah, I can't even think of the question to ask you because it's such a broad, broad subject in, in the UK. How is it gonna, are we gonna get around this? Are we gonna get past this? I think is a, one of the things a lot of people want to know that haven't got a direct interest in, in raptor persecution. What's, what's the answer in your, your eyes? In, in my uh, mind, or in, in my experience, uh, I think that yes, we'll, we'll get to a stage where raptor persecution is diminished considerably. I don't, I don't think we'll ever get to the stage where, where you, you eradicate it. Um, certainly not in my lifetime, but um, I would, uh, I expect to see changes. Um, if, it's, quite, it's quite hard. Um, it's quite hard to keep perspective sometimes, uh, especially if you've got um, a flurry of news stories coming in one after the other and you just think oh christ you know this is just relentless are, are we getting anywhere here at all but um you have to kind of stop and and take stock and mark avery is, is very good at doing this uh you know I'll, I'll get on the phone to mark and say you know what the fuck you know what have we got to do um and he'll say well you know just look back to where we were 10 years ago when when we really started to to push this um very little was known i mean the rspb knew all about it they've been working on this for a long time but um didn't they didn't have the social media at the time uh, it's very difficult to to get that information out um they would they would write hard copy reports but unless you kind of went looking for that information you wouldn't know about it um and I think with the explosion of, of social media um, and blogs like mine, blogs like Mark's, um, the creation of all these new 
groups in the field who are all talking to each other on social media. I think um, I think we have come a long, long way. Mark, Mark always talks about um, the press. He said, look at look, look at the press around the 12th of August, 10 years ago. All you'd have seen would be, you know, it's the glorious 12th. We're, we're all off up north uh, on our jollies to shoot some grouse. Isn't this all great? Um, you look at it now um, and it, you'd be lucky to find a story that is just so one-sided that the press are having to report the other side of it now. And we've all done that. We've all managed to achieve that in a 10 year period. It seems like 10 years does seem a, a long time. And, and it, you know, in relation to our, to our own lifetime, yeah, it is a long time, but in the big yeah. scheme of things, it's nothing, you know? So uh, yeah, you've got to, you've got to keep perspective. I think you've got to be, um, you've got to be optimistic in some ways, although optimism is quite hard, quite hard thing to maintain uh, when yeah. you're inundated with this stuff day in, day out. But um, I do, I do believe that that we're getting somewhere. Um, Scotland is is just teetering on the edge. I think the Scottish government has been backed into a corner so far now um, that what's what's going to happen this year will be really interesting really yeah. interesting i think westminster you know as you know is is way behind way behind yeah, yeah. um yeah. but but if we see movement in scotland which i think we have to see i don't think that they can uh, kick this into the long grass anymore if there's movement in scotland uh, it will follow that there'll be movement in westminster eventually it won't be a quick thing because this it's, it's not you know it's not a quick game it's a long yeah. game that we're playing here but um I do feel like we're we're making progress. Do you do you ever can you ever see a a time when and some people will probably poo poo me for saying this. Um, do you ever see a time when conservationists and people from the for instance the shooting fraternity will work? side by side and, and we won't have that in my, in my and this is just my opinion that um this entrenched sort of views from either side us and us and them do you think we'll ever get past that and and, and i suppose if we look at it from an organization's point of view rspb moreland association and all, all of us as well um where will they'll actually sit around the table and be able to work together uh, right now, no. uh, it's it's been it's been done. It's been done to death. It's been done again. You know, talk, you you need to get Mark Avery onto one of these things. Yeah. He'll talk to you about the history of all this stuff. You know, they've been sitting around tables for thirty years, um, all saying the right thing. But um, the reality is that the the persecution continues, and, and we know it's continuing. We can all see it. Um, so until that changes. Um, I certainly wouldn't be wouldn't be interested in sitting sitting around a table with them. It, what's the point? But having said that, there are there are some within the shooting world um, who are genuinely as horrified as we are by what's going on. And and I'm talking to some of those people privately. Um, I don't know whether they're in positions of influence. I think a couple of them probably are actually. Um, but it's important to 
to keep that in mind that there are some some decent people out there but the pre the pressure on the industry has to come from within there you know for change they're not they're not going to change because we want them we, yeah. to change um because they don't have to um yeah. and they've and they've got away with it for so long but um yeah it's it's a tricky one but uh un until until the industry accepts what's going on until the industry leaders accept what's going on uh you know you, ju you just have to look at their response to to the news last week with, with the rspv talking about um you know pretty much carnage during lockdown and i know about some of those cases that haven't been made public yet and, and when they are made public there's going to be one almighty shitstorm. i'm telling you uh you won't believe some of the stuff that's gone on um but until the industry will accept and acknowledge that they've got a problem um there's no point sitting around a table with them as far as yeah. i'm concerned yeah and that well that is the that's the biggest thing and that's that's the most telling thing from someone like myself who's got a big interest in it but nowhere near as involved in in it as you is and and hopefully other people see this is they it is just the same old rhetoric that's trotted out whenever these press releases come out and and then what what i find as well and, and it's just human nature i think in some ways as well is you know the scapegoats that are used along the way so whether it's the rspb and, and social media obviously is it plays a big part in this because it gives everyone a platform um you know so whether it's the rspb chris packham your blog it's like well we'll just fire we'll fire shots at them because they're they're sticking the head above the parapet and it's a bit yeah people don't see the bigger picture in my eyes of well we need to get you need to get around this because it's going to keep adding nails to the coffin and it is you can't be ignorant about that um so yeah how do you a question that comes up in my head and i hope you don't mind me asking this how do you deal with the um the sort of the the, the bad side of things the the hate the anything like that it's i've only experienced it once um when we when raptor aid set up a peregrine watch and and it unfortunately found its way onto some pigeon fanciers pigeon racers pages and went right across to australia and i had all sorts of nothing like what people like chris bample but some pretty horrible stuff sent to me and probably because i'm a bit of a weirdo i just sat with me and my wife sat there laughing about it overnight and she laughed more than me actually i don't know whether that means she agrees with them um but how do you deal how do we get around that sort of thing and deal with it thick skinned uh, yes, to, to a point, uh, you, you have to be thick-skinned, but there, there comes a, a point where um, what's going on is, is completely unacceptable. And I've actually got, um, <clears throat> got something going on at the moment, uh, an investigation uh, with the police um, over two individuals in particular um, who, uh, yeah, I, I probably shouldn't say too much about it, but uh, it's an investigation into uh, harassment. Um, so, yeah, I think I think again, it's all, it's all about keeping perspective on it. Um, you know, you expect to be criticised, and, and why shouldn't you be criticised? It's absolutely fine. Everyone's entitled to to their view on on what's going on, and it's actually healthy to be criticised because people have valid points. You know, 
Um, it's when it becomes personally abusive. Um, that's the difficulty. And, and it's not necessarily um, one, one individual incident of, of getting personal abuse. It's the accumulation of abuse that, um, that I've found quite difficult, um, particularly uh, with, uh, with a couple of them. Um, that's hard. But yeah, yeah, m most of it, you just have to see it for what it is that it's just a way. It, it means that you're having an impact, you're doing yeah. something right. Um, they don't like it, they're trying to shut you up, they're trying to intimidate you uh, to stop you doing what you're doing. And, and you have to bear in mind, okay, well, um, why do they want me to stop doing this? It must be because I'm having some influence here. I'm having some impact here. So um, yeah, intimidation isn't going to stop me. Isn't going to stop Chris. Isn't going to stop Mark or any of the people, other people. There are lots of people who, yeah. who have been harassed in this way. Some of them uh, because of their association with the three of us. Um, some of some of them because they work for, just because they work for the RSPB. Um, anybody who's prepared to stand up and say something is going to be a target um, and that stops some people from speaking out i know a few people uh, particularly within the scottish raptor study group um, who feel really strongly about persecution of course they do um, but they're they're unwilling to to stand up and say that publicly because they're worried uh, that their dogs are going to be poisoned or their house is going to be set on fire, um, you know, and and I can't blame them for that. These people, these are people living in um, small rural communities. Um, it's difficult, I, I, and and in the same way, it must be difficult for some people uh, who are involved in some of these uh, grass shooting estates um, who may not like what's going on. But again. They're in a very small, uh, restricted community where everyone knows everyone else. Uh, and it can be, I'm sure, um, very intimidating for them to be prepared to stand up and say, actually, um, I know what you guys are doing and, uh, and I'm not putting up with it anymore. And the, re the really sad, I mean, all of that's all just sitting listening to that roof. It's terrible, whether it's whether you're getting abuse from one person or the fact that, that you know, even the fact that you're having to involve the police in any respect it's just it's terrible to hear um I, I kind of asked it you because i just want people to be aware of what what people who are actually not afraid to make a noise and for, for the right reasons have to go through um yeah it's i think it's just quite important sometimes to put a bit of perspective into people's lives with with uh with exactly what's what's going on um, I think things have, I agree with you, I definitely think things have changed in even my short window of, of following following this sort of thing. And I think it's down to wonderful things like like your your blogs. Does it does it frustrate you when you you take a scenario, for instance, if we talk about wild justice just briefly, and that's obviously not just you, there's you know, there's other, a lot of other people involved in that. If we look at the, like the general license thing, um, do, and and as far, again, correct me if, if I'm wrong, please do. Um, that was basically 
done with a view of, well, we need to take stock and look at what's what's going on here. And basically, it's a bit of a hash, for want of a better word. Sorry, I could probably use better words. And really, we need to review the, the whole general license system. It's not about abolishing predator control. That's the way I got it. It's about reviewing the species that are on there, and, and how how the licenses are issued, etc. Does it annoy you if I'm right with that analogy? And then there's more to it. I know there is. Does it annoy you then when it's all span out of complete into absolute crap in many ways? Of oh well, Chris Packer wants to completely ban shooting. He's a you know a vegan anarchist. Do you know? Do that. Do does that annoy you, or do you just have to? ride it and say well this is what some people are going to spin it whether it's not just the media whether it's the general public and people on that side of the fence does that sort of thing annoy you when people completely take it out of context no because we've we've come to expect it uh the the three of us uh have had that for a long time through uh, as a response to our individual work so of course we knew with with wild justice that that's how it would be misrepresented uh, and that's exactly uh, what's what's happening um it is quite amusing some of it because it's so uh, wildly off the mark um and it doesn't matter how much you you try and explain uh, explain your position uh, there's always going to be those spin doctors in in the shooting industry who who will deliberately misrepresent because they see it as again it's a threat to um to what they've been allowed to do for so long so they'll try and, and make us make us out to be you know uh, i think anti-shooting extremists is is the common one um and we want to ban all shooting forever um you know you've only got to go onto the wild justice blog uh, and read actually read what we're doing we explain it all on there we explain why why we're doing it what we're trying to achieve um those people who who are interested enough will do that and, and that's why we write that blog so that uh you know here's our here's our explanation for what we're doing and those who who don't want to read it or don't want to know uh fine let let them let them kick off again it's not going to stop us doing what we're doing um we can only do what we do with wild justice um because we have public support you know our, our funding model is everything we do is crowdfunded we don't we don't have uh big grants coming in from anywhere we don't have massive um individual funders we have people who are prepared um to stick their hand in their pocket and give us 20 quid 30 quid whatever um to fund a particular um legal challenge so we feel that uh, you know as long as we have that support then we're going to continue doing what we're doing if we don't get that support, we can't take the cases. It's as yeah. simple as that. So, um, yeah, it, no, it, do, it doesn't. It doesn't annoy us. It, it amuses us more more than anything. Yeah, good. Well, that's all right then. I suppose it annoys. Well, no, it's to be expected. But one way I could look at it being annoyed is that really these are these are things that that the shooting fraternity and organisation should be looking at themselves. It shouldn't be a case of a, a an NGO or, you know, an organisation that's been set up. The, the organisation shouldn't have had to have been set up to look at such things. It should be a thing that the government and, yeah, the organisations involved should be looking at themselves, but then maybe I'm living in a, 
fairy tale. Uh, well, I am with that sort of thought. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm conscious that there's uh, no one's really asked. There's people saying hi and the odd question. I, I, I'm conscious I'm going to have to mention this species. We'll have to talk about hen harriers um, because I know someone will say, oh, why didn't you talk about hen harriers? Um, while you had roof on and I've got well I've got probably Mr Hen Harrier on tomorrow with Brian Etheridge so Brian Brian's oh. on tomorrow uh, which I'm looking forward to and um, the brood meddling is just am I right in did I see on Twitter I didn't read it unfortunately I, um, I didn't have time but brood meddling's just been licensed again for um, is it another year two years or year um, yeah what what what's what's your position on that so apologies again if you talk you probably taught this to death you know I'd, I'd have thought that what we've seen in the first the first license that was issued it's a bit of a pig's ear what if you take away whether brood meddling works or not and and the the fact that you you're pandering to the shooting estate you know just it seems like it was a bit of a from someone reading from the outside in, it was a bit of a hash the first year round. So what, what's your opinion on the fact that they've managed to get another license? Well, I'm not surprised that they've got an, another license. Um, I'm not surprised at all. I think that was, that was their intention all along. Um, the only disappointing thing I think at the moment is that the, um, the appeal, the legal challenge appeal that uh, Mark Avery and the RSPB are doing um, has been delayed. There was a hearing, I think it was in March. Um, so the appeal hearing started, it got to day one, but then one of the three judges became ill, um, they think with, with the virus. Uh, and so the court was closed. Um, and I think we're all now waiting to hear when there's going to be another date given whether that's going to be through video conferencing or you know an actual court a day in court again um but it's it's come too late really for this season um i don't want to say too much about brood meddling um at the moment because i've got a blog coming on, oh, right, okay. um um with some very interesting information some new information um about uh about what they're doing um okay yeah I, I don't want to sound too cryptic but i don't i don't want to give it away because there's no, a couple of things that i need to check out first but it looks like um well you called the first year a, a pig's ear um if they've done what i think they've done and what i've been told that they've done um yeah this year will be just as bad as last year right. fair, fair enough i mean it's quite you know, it, it's yeah, it's 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 pretty. I remember t I talked to Carl about it, um, you know, briefly, and he, he actually maybe mentioned it. it. Might be his fault that I asked you that question then, because he didn't might have said to me about ask Ruth about brood meddling. Um, so I'm blaming Carl now. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, he he said he goes because obviously the way Carl works and and you know extensively with reintroductions and, and you know. He said the theory, the theory works, the theory works, but actually putting it into practice and making it work for the situation, he said, is, is way off the mark, which is. Yeah, well, there's a number, there's a number of things that, that are wrong with it. I mean, it's just, it's just bonkers. Yes, in, in theory, 
it could work. Um, and yes, in theory, they did manage to take chicks and, and raise them in captivity. You know, you've got Mima Parry Jones. Of course, she's going to do a good job. That's what she does. Um, and and they were able to release those birds again. Um, and in some people's eyes, that's job done. You know, but of course, uh, the proof of the pudding is what happens to those young birds when you release them. Um, and we don't really know because the tags they're using are um, a little bit off. Uh, but something that I read uh, quite recently, um, the scientific uh, review committee for that project um, wrote a report, which I FOI'd. Um, it took me a while to get it off Natural England. Um, surprise, surprise. Um, and I will be publishing that on the blog at some point. But uh, one of the guys on the scientific advisory committee, I won't say who it was, but he's a, he's a top guy i mean he, he's big in conservation he knows his stuff um he probably knows i'm sure he knows he will know carl for sure uh, yeah of course he knows carl um his point um when he was just looking at the scientific justification of this trial was um if brood meddling is um is designed to increase the population of hen harriers which is what the the grouse shooting industry keep telling us that's that's the point they want to see more hen harriers he said if if brood meddling um if the main aim is is to do that um why are you only taking um one clutch of eggs or one brood of chicks from that nest if if you want to increase the population you do what carl jones would do take the eggs early on knowing full well that those birds will will relay you get a double clutch yeah. um and I thought that was a really interesting question to be posed to uh, Natural England. Um, I think the response back was was something ridiculous, like, oh, well, this is it's just the first year. Uh, we're taking it steady, you know, step by step. We'll just do one nest this year. But um, I think that's a point that I will come back to on the blog because if this is a genuine conservation project which of course it bloody isn't we all know it isn't but yeah. that's how it's that's how it's being portrayed yeah. um then yeah you would be taking those eggs a lot earlier and letting those birds relay and taking them again yeah well yeah absolutely and, and like you say the proof will the proof will be in the pudding with 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 this um whether it's actually a conservation well it's not but of course it isn't yeah. everybody knows um, it isn't yeah one of the things one of the things that popped up i think today actually and it well not necessarily today but over the last week with with all this news breaking someone's mentioned it in the comments before and i'm i'm, I'm can't be bothered to scroll down now apologies um was about obviously one of the questions we got asked in previous blogs was about the the fact that COVID nineteen the, the lockdown were is this going to have a negative impact on um, birds of prey and and obviously the rising illegal persecution we know the answer to that now um, and we knew the answer to it I know people discussing it with people you know based on foot and mouth previous previous things that have that have gone on. How do we how do we get round this, where the, uh, certain organisations that are don't don't agree with with uh, the fact that persecution has risen are saying such things like, well, ra raptors have never the populations of raptors have never been healthier in this country. It's a boot you know it's a boom in in raptors. 
how do we get round this fact, apart from the obvious of well, science, science proves them wrong, um, and maybe that is the answer. What, what, how do we get round to the to the general public that aren't going to read all the, the studies and, and necessarily the, the reports that maybe RSPB produce? How do we get past this continuous use of mis-science or whatever the correct word is? <laughs> Yeah, I, I saw that. I think I think it was GWCT who um, had said to come out with something ridiculous like um, the UK raptor population is now is booming and it's over there's over a quarter of a million of them. Yeah, I think it's like two hundred fifty thousand or something as, like that. Yeah, as as if you can discuss all these different species of raptors as as one, you know, yeah. um, it's just spin. Um, how do you get around that? You you have to you have to lay out the science there's no getting around that at all um and you just have to keep saying it but but really for those sorts of conversations uh, it's not the public that you need to convince it's the politicians that you need to convince um and certainly in scotland um the politicians get that they can they can see see this being they understand the science they're smart enough to ask the scientists what's going on and they'll read read the scientific report so they're under no illusion what's going on um westminster mps the, the ones that that i'm aware of um most of them have vested interests so uh there's this thing that i keep talking about a lot called willful blindness um you know they know they know what's going on but they're given they're given opportunities to willfully ignore it. Um, and when you see stuff from GWCT, who are supposed to be, uh, you know, science-based charity, um, just, just coming out with absolute guff about the UK raptor population is, is booming. It's just meaningless. It's absolutely meaningless. But it, it does allow those MPs who don't want to engage uh, with, a, with a let out. Um, so you know eventually we'll see no doubt we'll see some mps when there's another incident people will write to their mp and complain say you know what, what's the government doing about this and we'll see those staged res responses uh, that have been provided by those in the shooting industry and, and i've no doubt that we'll see this phrase uh you know the uk raptor population is booming and then it'll be up to us to to kind of rip that to shreds and say, um, you know, that's meaningless drivel. What are you talking about? Um, yeah. But but you're right. It's it's a pantomime, um, and we go around in in circles with it. Um, and it's like I said before, you know, until the industry is, is prepared to accept that there's an issue there, um, acknowledge that there's an issue and understand that they're in a position to do something about it, importantly, um, then they're just gonna keep coming up against flack from people like us because um, we're gonna be relentless. We're not gonna, we're not gonna just let them get away with that. So, you know, if it, if it means doing this for another 10 years, then that's what we'll do. Brilliant, that is a bloody good note to finish on. <laughs> <laughs> we've done nearly an hour and a half i think we've been the longest one so far and i'm conscious i don't want to don't want to keep you too long ruth um I've yeah got mojito to finish uh, well i finished my beer so i'm spitting <laughs> feathers at the moment um 
No, that's well, yeah. Uh, it, it's yeah. We just don't stop there, do we? Which is which is the no. You can't. You can't. You can't stop. You've just got to. Um, you've got to keep keep going. Brilliant. Right, Ruth. I will. Uh, I'll leave you in peace. I won't keep you any longer. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking time to talk to to uh, me and everyone. I think a few people have tuned in. Um, so yeah, uh, thank you very much, Ruth. I will. Thanks uh, a lot. Well, tomorrow, anyone tuning in, if you enjoyed this tonight, uh, we've got Brian Etheridge on tomorrow. So, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a good one as well. So, uh, yeah. Right. Take care, everyone. Enjoy the sunshine. <laughs>